Well, when I moved to Southern California about seven years ago, uh, I had certain expectations about what it would be like to live here. And some of those have been met and even exceeded. Uh, the weather here is fantastic. I, I thought it would be. Living in the Midwest, enduring some freezing winters, and, and uh, it's, it's wonderful living here. Though It's perfect. Uh, I also envisioned, I had this expectation, that I would go to the beach every day. And uh, I would pretty much live down there, be, be, surf every day, uh, go out, you know, go out on boats, you know, deep sea fishing, kayaking, all that kind of stuff. That's what I envisioned living in landlocked Indiana. But uh, it didn't quite, hasn't quite worked out that way. Uh, for one thing, I found out that surfing requires quite a bit of coordination, and uh, it's something that I'm, I'm lacking in. Uh, I also found out that I get pretty motion sick on boats, even, even kayaks, so... You can ask, ask Norm Lenders about that sometime. But, uh, so I haven't done a lot of boating. Uh, I, I haven't done any surfing. But I still enjoy going down to the beach, hanging out down there. I love to look at boats. Not ride on them, but look at them. Uh, I enjoy going down to the docks in Long Beach where they have those huge cruise ships that come in. Uh, even down at Del Mar where people have their yachts and whatnot. And I think it's really fun when, when for whatever reason, they, they dock these boats and then they raise them up, and you can see the bottom of the boat. You can see underneath. And a lot of times they'll do that in order to clean the boat of barnacles. Barnacles are these real little crustacean-like creatures that can attach to a boat. And they attach in order to be able to feed off of this, the particles in the ocean and whatnot. And if uh, each of them is pretty small, and so it doesn't seem like that would matter very much, but over time, more and more barnacles begin to attach to the bottom of a boat. And if enough attach and they're growing, after a while that begins to weigh the boat down. And it begins to create a lot of drag in the water. And so you end up using a lot of fuel to be able to get your boat to go the speed that you want it to. The Navy estimates that they spend about $200 million extra a year on fuel because of barnacles on their ships. And that's amazing to me to think about, that a huge aircraft carrier could be, you know, could be affected that way by just these tiny little barnacles. Uh, and as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, there, there could be a spiritual application for our lives. If you imagine that our lives are like boats, and as Christians, we're called to fall after Christ, and so we're following him out through the, the ocean of this world. And as we do that, I think it's inevitable that we will accumulate some barnacles, because we live in a fallen world, and we ourselves still have fallen sinful natures, even though we're becoming more and more like Christ. And so I think it's inevitable that we're going to pick up ungodly thought patterns, sinful desires, uh, wrong actions, wrong way of relating to people. We pick those up over time. And a lot of times they're really small initially. They're subtle. We don't realize that, that they're coming into our lives. Maybe it's just through a TV show, through conversations with certain friends or whatever. We begin to pick up these little barnacles, these sinful attitudes and thought patterns. And over time, they can accumulate, and we may not even realize it, but eventually we begin to feel like the Christian life is really hard. We begin to feel like, man, it's really difficult to follow Christ. I, you know, when I first came to the Lord, it was so exciting. I had so much energy, but now it's hard, and I, I feel like I should have, you know, more victorious living. I should be energized, and yet it's really difficult, and I, I don't know what the problem is. And there could be a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons could be that over time you've accumulated some of these sinful barnacles on the hull of your ship, and they're weighing you down. They're causing a lot of drag as you try to follow Christ through the water. And so what we want to do today is examine ourselves in light of God's word, and through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to examine ourselves and see 
do I have barnacles, sinful barnacles in my life that are weighing me down? They're causing, it, causing me to have a lot of difficulty in following Christ. I think one of the dangers of a message like this is that it can produce a lot of guilt and a lot of condemnation in people. And that's not my goal for you today. I don't want you to, to just feel like, oh, I'm just such a loser, such a loser Christian, you know, or, or to try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and be like, okay, I'm going to work a little bit harder. Uh, that's not my goal. And I think those kind of attitudes actually make it even harder to follow Christ. But rather, what I would, what I would hope that your attitude would be, would be uh, just kind of a peaceful, uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to, to show you your heart. Just relax and say, Holy Spirit, would you show me today my heart, show me any areas of sin that I have allowed to get in and to take root in my life and then help me clean, you know, clean those out and help me to live in freedom. That's my goal today for you. So let's dive in. The passage we're going to look at is Ephesians 4. There's a lot of good passages in God's word about how to live, but this is one of my favorites. Uh, as, a, as a Christian, I've come back to this a lot just in my own life, trying to, uh, to identify and, and be cleansed of junk that accumulates there. Uh, so it's Ephesians 4, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And Paul says in verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. First verse and I think when you're reading through a passage like this, it's very easy to gloss over something, uh, something like that. It's very easy to say, well, I don't lie. I'm not a liar. I, I tell the truth and, and just kind of skip over it. But before we do it, let's pause for a second and think about what falsehood is. It's more than just outright lies. It could be uh, fudging, fudging on your taxes, maybe. Uh, you know, rounding up a number here and there just to get a little bit better return or to not have to pay quite so much. It could be fudging on a resume so that you look like you're just a little more qualified than you are. Could be a broken promise where you're telling someone that you're going to do something and you keep telling them but you never do it. That's falsehood. It could be a half-truth where you emphasize favorable facts about yourself and you kind of neglect to mention or kind of gloss over the negative facts that make you look uh, not quite so justified, not quite so right in that situation. Uh, there's no outright lie involved, but you're falsely representing the situation. You're making yourself look more justified than you are. Another one that's kind of tricky is flattery. And this is tricky because we always want to speak with kindness. We always want to speak with respect to people. But at the same time, it's, it's wrong to say positive things about someone that are false in order to, to gain their favor or to keep them from getting angry at you. It's wrong. The Bible condemns that. It's a form of flattery, a form of falsehood. Another one that I struggle with, to be very honest, is exaggerations. I like to exaggerate. I like to make myself look just a little bit better than I am and, and make my stories look a little bit bigger, a little bit uh, awesomer, uh, to use one of my expressions. Uh, I, I want people to, to be impressed with me, to like me, to, or at least maybe to envy me a little bit. And you may say, well, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, who cares? You caught a fish about this big and you said it was maybe this big. I mean, Dean does that. I, you don't do that. You don't do that. No. Dean's very honest about the little fishes that he catches. You may say, look, it's not a big deal. But the reality is that any time we use our words to give a false 
impression of reality, we are guilty of falsehood. And so Paul tells us to speak truthfully to each other because we are members of one body. We're members of the body of Christ. Can you imagine if parts of your body started lying to you? That would be a big problem, and it happens to people, uh, where people have neurological problems and they can touch a hot stove and not feel it. That's a big, big problem. Or people hallucinate and they see things that aren't there. That's a problem. And so in the body of Christ, we need honesty. It's what enables us to function well. We don't like pain. We don't like having problems pointed out to us. And yet that's what enables us to to address these things, to get solutions, to avoid uh, going the wrong way. And so, yes, we need to speak in love and kindness, but we have to be honest with each other as a body. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So the second thing Paul mentions here is anger. Uh, What's your anger like? How do you act when you get angry? Anger itself is not always wrong. But there's a real fine line between anger and sin in Scripture. There's actually a number of, of Greek words in the Bible that refer to anger or that we translate as anger. One of them is called thymos. And uh, it literally, it means to, to boil over. You just get so angry, you know, you explode and you're shouting and you're yelling and you're cursing. And, and that's actually used in verse 31 here. In scripture, that kind of anger is always wrong for humans. It's always sinful. Uh, it's never right. But there's another word here, used here in this verse, and it's orge. And it's the anger of conviction. It means that you're angry, you're upset, you have convictions about sin and and evil. They make you angry because you know how they hurt people and how they dishonor God, and so you get very upset over that. And some of you, maybe you need to to have some of this kind of anger in your life. You never get angry, and you think that's a good thing, but you're just kind of... You're kind of complacent. You're kind of apathetic to the evil that's around you. And God wants to stir you up and give you some righteous anger to help you fight against injustice. But at the same time, even even righteous anger is very dangerous when it's directed towards people in our lives. You know, when someone sins against you, it is okay to have heartfelt conviction that what they did, did to you was wrong. If they sin against you, it's okay to feel that and to know what they did was wrong. Oh, it's, it's, that was not right. It's okay to feel that way. God agrees with you. But at the same time, it's a, very, it's a slippery slope to go from righteous anger. It's very easy to slide down into bitterness and hatred and unrighteous anger. And so Paul says here, don't allow the sun to go down on your anger. Don't allow it to simmer you got to choose. If you're angry with someone, they've sinned against you, either you choose to overlook that and to say, you know what, that was a sin, but I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to have mercy and grace on them because God, God overlooks so much sin in my life. He's kind to me. He's merciful to me. I'm going to overlook it in this, this situation. Or if you feel like you can't do that, you feel like the sin was serious enough or it's been repeated over and over, and you say, you know what, I have to address this, then go and seek reconciliation. Go to that person. Tell that person what's going on. You know, seek to be reconciled. Seek to... to to have a right relationship again. But Paul says, no matter what, you have to forgive them. No matter what happens, you must forgive. You must be able, at the end of the day, even if reconciliation didn't work, even if the person didn't admit that what they did was wrong and they're unwilling to address it, even then, you got to be able to go to God and say, okay, God, this is your situation. I'm not going to I'm not going to stew over this. I'm not going to seek vengeance against them. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm, I'm giving it to you. You are the judge, Lord. 
you take care of this situation. I'll, I'll continue to seek reconciliation, but you have, to, you have to take care of justice here, God. That's what we have to do. Paul says if we do not do that, we're going to give the enemy a foothold. And a foothold here is a military term. I think one of the best examples of, of a foothold in, in a military conflict is, is uh, the, the Normandy invasion in World War II. If, if you have any idea of history, uh, you know that during World War II, the Nazis held most of Euro Western Europe under their power. And the Allies wanted to invade. They wanted to take Europe back, but they needed a foothold. They needed a point from which they could, they could launch an invasion. And so they decided to attack the beaches of Normandy. And they, they invaded, they attacked, and it was a big struggle. But finally, they took this little plot of beach, this little beachhead, not very much land, but that was where they were able to set up their camp, assemble their soldiers, and from there, then they were able to invade all of Western Europe. And essentially, that's what the enemy is looking for in our lives, a tiny little area of entrance where he can then attack us in all other areas of our life. And bitterness is one of those things. It's, it's, it's a doorway to so many other sins. So Paul says, don't open that door. Close the door. Forgive. First of all, make sure your anger is righteous, and then take care of it. Don't hold on to it. Verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So the third thing that Paul mentions here is, is stealing and your work ethic. And again, I think this is one of those verses that we're tempted to just kind of gloss over. We read it and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I don't steal. I'm not, I don't shoplift. I'm not a burglar. You know, that's, that's not me. But there are other ways to steal. You can borrow things and just never return them. Uh, you can just refuse to pay back your loans. I, I, had, I knew someone who, he moved to China to teach English so he wouldn't have to pay back his student loans. And he's like, I'm just going to live there. I was like, that's crazy, but that essentially is stealing. But I think what Paul has in mind here specifically is taking advantage of other people's generosity. See, people in the church, they were great at taking care of each other, at loving each other. And so if you had a need, if you were struggling financially, other Christians would help you. If you were unemployed, you couldn't provide for your family, other Christians would take care of you. They would give you the money, or they would give you food, or they would let you stay with them. They were, it was amazing hospitality, and we should, we should emulate that. But unfortunately, over time, some people began to take advantage of this, some Christians. And so they're looking for work, they're having trouble finding work, and they say, hey, why am I looking for work? Oh, people are going to take care of me. I can just enjoy, you know, be, be taken care of by the church. Paul equates that with stealing. He says, look, you're stealing. One, you're stealing from Christians, from other Christians. They should be giving their money to needy people, but they're giving it to you. You're stealing it from them. It's not yours by right. And then he says you're also stealing, or he equates this with stealing from the needy, from people who actually need your resources. They need money that these generous Christians have to give, but instead it's going to you. You're mooching off of them. And so Paul says, go out and work with your hands. The idea there is do manual labor. Greeks didn't like manual labor. It had kind of a stigma attached to it. But Paul said, I don't care. Go out, work hard, not just so that you can take care of your family, but so that you can give to others. Instead of mooching, work so that you can give. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, 
brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So the fourth thing Paul mentions as we're checking for barnacles, he says, look at your words. How do you use your words? We should be using our words to build people up. We shouldn't be uh, engaging in unwholesome talk. Unwholesome there, in the Greek, it means rotten, like rotten fruit. It's the kind of talk, it just stinks, and it drags everybody down. And I think one form of this kind of unwholesome talk from the passage is gossiping and slander. It's where you're criticizing and you're judging the motives of other people behind their back. You're talking about it. Gossip means to talk behind someone's back for no good reason. Slander means to bring someone down in the eyes of other people, to to hurt their reputation in the eyes of other people. So you're talking about somebody, and it can even be little stuff. I mean, we think of big things, but it can be little things. Uh, You're you're talking, you're like, hey, where's so-and-so? And someone says, oh, he's always late. Well, really? Always late? Like, universally, he's, he's never on time? I find that hard to believe. But, but those kind of statements, they decrease that person's image in the eyes of other people. We have to be so careful about that. Even mocking people. We'll say, oh, I'm just joking around. Well, really, are you, are you, are you joking in a way that just kind of makes that person look a little bit less, uh, especially if they aren't around? We have to be so careful of that. Even, I'll say, so, maybe controversial, hopefully not, but even with politicians and celebrities, and it's so dangerous. We love to do it because I think we think that they're not real people. Maybe we don't, I don't know, I don't know. But we're, we're talking about them. We're like, oh, so-and-so, I can't, you know, what a loser. He's so stupid. And we're judging their motives, and we don't even know them. I mean, we, we judge the, the motives of President Obama all the time. I, I, don't, I don't sit around talking with him. I don't know if you do. So I don't really know his motives in a lot of situations. That's essentially gossip and slander. Pray for people. You got an issue with somebody? You got an issue with the president? Pray for him. If you've got an issue with somebody in the church, pray for them. And then if you need to, go and talk to them. Someone in your family, go and talk to them. But don't don't gossip, don't slander. Another form of unwholesome talk in Scripture that's mentioned a lot is grumbling and complaining. It's where we say stuff like, oh, bad things always happen to me. My life is so hard. Just yesterday, yada, yada, yada. Or we'll say, oh, the world's just getting worse and worse. It's a bad place out there. I feel so, so sorry for the kids of today. Well, yes, life, life is hard. Absolutely, it is difficult. We all need support. We need people that we can be honest with about our problems. But if you're grumbling all the time, I think that just shows a lack of faith in God. And yes, there is a lot of evil in the world. I agree. And that should stir us up to righteous anger. But God is always doing something good in the world, especially for his children. That's what Romans 8:28 says. You know, God is not up in heaven pulling his hair out trying to respond to all of Satan's attacks. I think the opposite is true. God's kingdom is the one that's moving forward. God's kingdom is the one that's advancing. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every time Satan tries to attack and do something bad, God is turning it around for evil. Satan is the one pulling his hair out, not God. Okay, God's not up there, you know, trying to plug holes in a dam. He's in control. His kingdom is advancing. And yet, though Christians... We say that we believe in a big God. I think often our, our language, the way we talk, makes it sound like we believe in a big devil. 
We need to realize that hopelessness and despair are not from God. And constant grumbling and complaining, it just shows that we have a lack of faith in God. And that kind of talk grieves the Holy Spirit because it dishonors God and it weakens people's faith. And so instead of that, Paul says, be kind and compassionate. And the, the translation of be, probably better translated, become. It's a process. None of us have arrived. None of us are completely kind and compassionate. Raise your hand, and then if you are, you, you probably need some humility. But we're in process. We're, we're becoming. Paul says, become kind and compassionate, forgiving like Christ. Verse 31 again, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I think what Paul is saying there is that the root cause of unwholesome talk, the root cause of rotten talk, is bitterness, anger, unrighteous anger, and hatred, those three. Bitterness, unrighteous anger, and hatred. If you struggle with being a critical, judgmental person, or if you're always grumbling and complaining, it's probably because there's someone that you need to forgive, and there's a wound that needs to be healed from your past. So you need to go and you need to allow God to minister to you and to, to show you how dearly he loves you. That he cares about you, that he is a father, that you're his child. He loves you so much. And you need to just allow God to wrap his arms around you and to tell you that and to take you back to that situation where that pain happened to you, where that, that bitterness began and, and just allow God to say, I was with you there. I know it hurt, but I allowed that and I, I'm using it to bring something good in your life if you'll let me. Allow God to speak to you and allow God to remind you that he sent his son. That while you were still a sinner, while you turned your back on God, God died for you. We need to be reminded of that. And when we believe that, not just in our head, but when we believe that deeply in our heart, it gives us the strength to imitate Christ and to forgive as he forgave us. Verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are inappropriate, improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So the fifth and the final area that Paul tells us to examine for barnacles is the area of sex. He says there should not even be a hint of sexual sin in your life as a Christian. Sexual immorality here, the word for that means any sexual intercourse outside of marriage. So it could be, could be fornication, could be adultery. The word for impurity means any lustful action or lustful motivation. It means, it basically, it's seeking any form of sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. It could be physical or it could be mental. It could be porn, it could be romance novels, it could be fantasies. The literal meaning of impurity, it means to decay. I think what Paul's saying is that these things decay your relationship with God. They decay your, your spiritual life and your emotional life and even your physical body somehow. They decay that. They make you hard. I've seen this time and time again. I don't know what it is with sexual sin, but I've seen this especially where people will come and they'll say, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, doing this. I, I, I want to, you know, go off and have an affair or whatever. I, I mean, people tell me that. 
And I'll say, well, if I do this, but then later I come back and ask God to forgive me, won't he forgive me? Won't it be okay then? I mean, I know it's a sin, but later can I come back? I hate that question. Because yes, God will forgive you. If you're genuinely repentant, God will forgive you. The issue is not whether God will forgive, it's whether you'll want to be forgiven. Because there's something about engaging this stuff that it decays your heart, it hardens your heart. And I've seen so many people who go off into this thinking, I'll come back later, and they never come back. Their heart gets hard, it decays, and they just wander off. So Paul says, don't engage in this. When he says, don't engage in greed, I think there he's referring to the 10th commandment where God says, do not covet. Covet, greed, same thing. Do not covet. And he gives all these different things and finally says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. The idea here is don't desire someone who's not your spouse. Do everything you can to avoid lusting in that way. So Paul mentions these specific sexual acts, but then he also mentions how we talk about sex. And I think this is tricky for us in our age. I think in the last few decades, we've become more loose as Christians in kind of how we talk about sex. And that can be okay, but we have to be very careful. He says, he says, avoid obscenity. Obscenity is like perverted jokes, perverted conversations, filthy language. And he gives two categories for this. First, he says, avoid foolish talk. Foolish talk there, literally, it, it, it's, uh, it means moronic words. Um, I'm sorry to all junior hires here, but this makes me think of the kind of jokes I used to tell in junior high with my buddies. We weren't really following Christ, and we would, usually our jokes were dirty, and they were not very sophisticated. They were just pretty stupid. Dirty, stupid stuff. Uh, I also think of drunks. Uh, If you think, if you ever listen to a couple drunks joking around, usually dirty, usually not very smart. You're just like, oh man, these guys are stupid. Like, that's the kind of stuff that Paul's talking about. He says, avoid that. But then he also says, avoid coarse joking. And the word here for coarse joking in the Greek, it means to turn easily. Think about that. I think you could probably figure out what that means. It means that you're smart enough, you're clever enough, you're witty enough that you can take any comment and you can turn it into a sexual innuendo because you're so clever. And I think this is a little more tempting to some of us, especially when we're around our non-Christian friends. They're making jokes. They're really clever. And we want to show them that we're smart too. We're not stuck in the mud. We're not stupid. We can do this. And so we start doing that kind of thing. We start turning comments into little sexual innuendos. Paul says avoid even a hint of that because it dishonors God and it ruins our witness. And he says don't let people deceive you with empty words. If if you seek to live a pure life, people will tell you that you're legalistic, that you're sexually repressed. Even professing Christians will say that. The reality is that God will judge a lifestyle of sexual sin People who live that way will not enter the kingdom of God. I know that's not PC to say that, but it's it's Pauline, it's biblical. Yes, God is kind and he is compassionate. He is so patient with those who struggle, his children who are struggling in sexual sin. He is a kind, compassionate father. But his goal is to forgive and to heal you, to get you out of that, not to give you a pass to live in it. He's not up there in heaven saying, okay, that's cool, just do it, that's fine. No, he's saying, man, I, I understand that you're struggling. I understand this is hard, but let me heal you. Let me, I, I want to I I forgive you, and I want to heal you. I want to get you out of that. That's God's attitude. So hopefully, you've allowed the Holy Spirit to show you some barnacles in your life from those five categories. But now what do we do? Do we just go home and feel really depressed because we have this stuff in our life? I hope not. I have three things that we can do here. First, be cleansed of these things by the blood of Jesus. No matter how bad you feel, no matter how guilty you feel, Jesus is able to forgive any sin that you commit. 
if you come to him and sincerely say, God, I'm so sorry, I, I, I blew it, I messed up, I don't want to do that, I repent, please forgive me. The Bible says that he, Jesus, is faithful and just. He will forgive you of every sin that we confess uh, because his blood is enough. He died in our place. He took the punishment for our sins and his blood is enough to clean, to clean the whole of our ship of any barnacle that's there. But the second thing to do, it's one thing to be clean, but too often we just kind of jump back into life. And we just start going and we get these things right back. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit to make us sensitive to these th- sins when they try to attach themselves to us. See, I think a lot of us do sin out of habit. I mean, I know there are times when we, we think, oh, should I do this? And then we do it anyway. But I think a lot of times we're just kind of going through life. We're chugging along, we're on autopilot, and all these barnacles are just sticking to us because we're just, we're sinning out of habit. We're not even thinking about it. And then we look back and we say, oh, I can't believe I did this and this and this. Oh, what was I thinking? Well, you weren't thinking. You were just doing life on autopilot. And so what we need to do every morning is ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, make me sensitive to this stuff. Make me sensitive to this junk and give me a disgust for it. You know, when this stuff starts to come up, when, when I'm tempted to slander somebody, when I'm tempted to get together and, and talk about somebody, show me that I'm about to do this. When I'm tempted to get bitter about something someone said, show it to me. Show me my heart. When I'm tempted to exaggerate and to lie about myself, show it to me. When I'm tempted to look at porn or whatever, show it to me. Do something in my, in my, my mind, in my heart, where I say, oh my goodness, I'm about to do this, and then give me a disgust for it. I mean, have a, a holy disgust for that sin to say, man, I don't want to do that. Jesus, I don't want to do that. Give me a heart to please you. And then the third thing we need to do is fight until that habit is broken and then stay vigilance. Generally, they say it takes about three to four weeks to break a habit. And so for that first three to four weeks, if, the, if you have these habitual sins in your life, these barnacles that just want to come right back, it's going to be a struggle. For three to four weeks, you're going to have to be really, really on guard, really sensitive, really fighting this. But eventually, that time will pass. And you won't feel that same level of temptation, that same struggle, but you still have to be vigilant to not fall back into it. And at the same time, if during that period you're fighting it and you fall, get back up. Don't give up. God, God doesn't give up on you. He forgives you, and he says, okay, get back up. Let's do this again. And I believe if we do that, if we're allowed, we allow ourselves to be cleaned, we ask the Holy Spirit to make us sensitive, and we fight, we will sail lighter, we will sail faster, 